Hey, uh, welcome and thank you for worshiping with us. My name is George Hinman. I'm senior pastor here. And today we come to the sixth word of the 10 or the sixth matter, sixth commandment as they've been referred to. And uh, as we come to the sixth one, it's actually, I think, the hardest one for Moses to get across to Israel. And that's because this of the six is the one that everybody knows Moses has famously already broken. Murder. And so I think there's a lesson right off the top in that for us, and that is that um, life is a gift of grace. Grace. That God wants to give us grace. And Moses is standing in that grace, even as he comes down from Mount Sinai with these 10 words. And that's the good news. We read in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news. That's the gospel. The gift of life, abundant life, eternal life, life for me, life for you. It's all a gift of grace. One of our values here at UPC is to live gospel-shaped lives. We believe in good news here, and we believe that it'll permeate every part of our life. So we'll talk a little bit about that as we get to our uh, sixth commandment today. I invite you to open up the Bible to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It's going to go real quick, so you've got to get there fast. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. But as we read this, would you just use your imagination and put yourself in Moses's shoes. See yourself as he might have seen himself as he heard these words, a breaker of the commandment, standing in grace. All right, here we go. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, I had a awkward experience this summer, I was with you and many others protesting anti-black racism in our uh, country, went downtown and was there to affirm Black Lives Matter, uh, so important for us. And I, <laughs> one moment, a police officer happened to walk by and kind of reflexively, I, I looked at her and said, thank you. Thank you for what you do. And all of a sudden, I kind of caught myself and I thought, wait a minute, this feels weird because we're not in this crowd right now for police officers. We're in this crowd for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and African-Americans in our city. But I do appreciate uh, police officers. Kind of raised a question for me. How can you be pro-black lives and pro-police officers? Or if you want to be provocative and just put it in the starkest possible terms, how can you be pro-George Floyd and also pro-the man who murdered him? You know, I think it's a question that Moses would have understood. Moses knew about that kind of attention. Moses knew about racism. He was a Hebrew minority uh, living in ancient Egypt. As Ralph just explained, he, his mother put him in a basket in the river. And the reason for that is the, the, the Egyptians were systematically murdering Hebrew boys. But he, because of this 
um, escape plan. He actually got caught by the Pharaoh's daughter, was raised an Egyptian with lots of privilege. One day he came out into the fields and saw the forced labor that his people, his real people, the Hebrews, were enduring. And the sense of justice kind of welled up inside of him. And um, as he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his countrymen, Moses, in a fit of rage, killed the Egyptian. He murdered him. That was the crime that Moses committed. He murdered this Egyptian man, buried his body, hid him in the sand. The next day, Moses goes out into the fields again, and there are two Hebrews this time, and they're having a conflict with one another. And again, a sense of justice kind of wells up inside of Moses, and he tries to intervene, and one of his own people, the Hebrew, looks at him and says, so are you going to kill me now too? And so there he is kind of caught between the Egyptian and the Hebrew, and they're both in him, and he wants to be pro-Hebrew, and they're wondering if he's pro-Egyptian. And, and the question is, can you be both? You know, what would it take for us to be life givers, not life takers, and life givers for all people? That's, that's what I wanted in the protest. That's what we all need r- right now. I think I want to be a life giver for African Americans. I want to be a life giver for law enforcement officers. Because I think this deal where you have to lose for me to win, or when my party wins, your party loses, isn't working for us. It just means we all lose and no one wins. So how can we be a life giver for all people? Well, I think the answer is actually in the sixth word. It, it's right in, in Moses' hands. Um, and, it's, and it's actually in Moses' life because remember, as I said, Moses is standing in grace. Moses has changed. Something's happened in his life. This experience of grace has moved him from being a life taker, m- murdering an Egyptian, to being a life giver, this great leader in, in uh, Israel, this warrior for justice. How does it happen? Well, what Moses we would understand is that it happens in relationship with a God who gives us grace. So let's look at that together just for a few minutes. What I want to do is look at this commandment in two different degrees of resolution. I want to zoom in and then zoom out. I want to zoom in and look at the words in the commandment. And then I want to zoom out with you and see how those words function in the wider story of the whole Bible. So let's zoom in first. When we zoom in, we meet a God with a gift of life. God is the giver of life, the author of life, the Lord of life. That's what we meet inside these words. So, so look, the words themselves, they say, you shall not murder. That's, that's Exodus 20, 13, the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. It's a great imperative. Now, if you were hearing this in the Hebrew that Moses speaks, it would only be two words. It's just two words. And it strikes their ears like it would strike ours if it were never murder or never kill. So what do these two words mean? What do they, what do they tell us? <laughs> well, in the Hebrew language, there are four major words that describe taking another person's life. This particular word that's used in the commandment is never used of killing in war, for example, It's never used of of killing in the context of uh, capital punishment where uh, through a judicial process and um, someone is duly authorized to render judgment. That's not what it means. 
Uh, Bruce Walke, the great Hebrew scholar and one of the translators of the New International Version, he defines this Hebrew word as to take innocent life. Take innocent life. And as you read the, the Old Testament, you realize it can be intentional, like first degree murder, or it can be unintentional, like third degree homicide. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8, if you're a homeowner and your flat roof doesn't have any kind of a rail and you're having a party up there and somebody falls off, um, you're guilty of, of murder because you didn't put a rail in a dangerous situation. If you're uh, the owner of an ox, we read in Exodus 21, verse 29, and that ox gores somebody, if it's the first time it happens, you know, it's just an accident, a horrible one. But if it has happened before, that there's a history that this ox of goring people, and you did not restrain the ox, then you're guilty of murder. You take an innocent life. The reason God cares about these two words, the reason God's trying to give us this gift of life, for humans in particular, is, is that we're made in God's image. If you want to see that, you can, you can flip back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. This is um, God's promise to Noah. And we read here, whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. Now, this might sound a little bit weird to you. You're like, wow, if you murder, you'll get murdered. How does that work? What it's really trying to say is that God is the one who gives life and God's the only one who takes life. And um, so we don't have the right to, t and the reason for that is we're all made in God's image, which is to say we're all little representations of divinity. We, we, we're like mirrors who reflect divinity. We're all pictures. If you want to, uh, here's a, an example. Here's a, here's a picture of me. I don't know if you can see that. This is me. Uh, this is my friend's favorite shirt and I bought one myself and I wanted to send him. So I texted this picture. This is a picture of me and it's an image of me. And what the Bible is saying is essentially that every human being is like this, a representation, a partial representation of the invisible God. And so that's why this matters, human life. John Calvin wrote, our neighbor bears the image of God. To misuse the neighbor is to do violence to the person of God who images himself in every human soul. And J.I. Packer writes, human life is thus the most precious and sacred thing in the whole world. So because we bear God's image and God's trying to give us the gift of life and cares very greatly about this, he gives us this great imperative. You shall not murder. You shall not take innocent life. And there, of course, are many implications to this. Uh, for example, the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal. Now, we know we're still trying to live into that truth as a country. But do you know where it comes from? Tom Holland, who's a British historian, recently written uh, about how it traces back to Moses, actually. He, he says anyone who's a scholar of uh, antiquity or other religions realize it is not self-evident that all people are created e equal. Not at all. And if you want to know why we believe that, it's because of Moses, he argues. Declaration of Independence. Uh, another implication of the great imperative comes to us in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, 
adopted in 1948. Did you know that the chair of the committee that wrote the uh, Declaration of Universal Human Rights was Eleanor Roosevelt? And she was a very committed follower of Jesus Christ. And one of the great framers of that declaration was Charles Malik from Lebanon. And he also was a devout uh, Orthodox believer. The religious language was taken out of the declaration, but it's deeply rooted in this commandment. And of course, there are implications for all sorts of ethical challenges, as, as you know. Uh, war, poverty, abortion, stem cell research, disability, euthanasia, capital punishment. In all of these areas, thoughtful people and followers of Jesus Christ are obligated to give this imperative first priority as we work through the complexities. And Moses should have done the same when he was in the field with the Egyptian. I believe the Lord was trying to get through to his spirit, saying essentially to Moses, Moses, I gave you the gift of life. I gave this man the gift of life. He's a reflection of me. And without him, you will have, Moses, less of me to see. You shall not murder. So, so, so when we zoom in, we meet a God who's trying to give us the gift of life, abundant life, life to the full, eternal life. That's what he's doing. That's what's in these two words, the sixth commandment. But by themselves, I really want you to understand this today. Hang in there with me. By themselves, these two words are not enough. They're certainly not enough to transform us from life takers into life givers. For that, we need to zoom out. And here's what you see if you zoom out. If you zoom out and place these words in the context of the wider arc of the Bible, in the context of the gospel, we meet a God with the gift of life redeemed. Life redeemed. Okay, this is what you see in Moses. So zoom out, look at Moses' life. Look at Jesus' life and teachings. Look at the whole story arc of the Bible. And what we encounter is not just law, but gospel. Uh, fancy word for good news. When we say the gospel here at UPC, what, me, what we mean is the good news that God has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus Christ comes from 2 Corinthians 5. The good news that God has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus Christ. And what you want to, the most important thing to understand in the gospel is the agency. Who's doing the, the work that matters most? And the, the agency of the gospel is always God acting in Jesus Christ. Jesus has always got to be the hero of the Bible, of our lives of salvation, because he's the hero of the gospel. He's the decisive agent through whom God reconciles us to him and reconciles us to one another. God acting. We need him. We need him. And he's giving us the gift of life redeemed because of that. Because here's the truth. There's something inside of me that is, even to this day, a life taker. And I wrestle with this being. See, there's something inside of Moses that's a life taker. I, notice this. Even when Moses was trying to act as an agent of justice, he took a life. He did the opposite of justice. Even when his best impulse was leading to him to act on behalf of people who were oppressed, he ended up becoming oppressive to someone else in the name of justice. 
Moses murdered. Now, why? It's because his heart was complicated. There was something else inside of him that he could not manage or control. And this is what we see in the wider biblical arc. So let's go back. The first murder is Cain and Abel. You know the story right after Garden of Eden, the next generation, Cain murders his brother, but he gets a warning ahead of time. The Lord comes to him and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. And, And listen to how the Lord describes the situation in Cain's heart. He says in Genesis chapter four, verse seven, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And this is metaphorical language. It's describing sin like it's an animal, like a wild animal, a tiger or a lion or something crouching at the door. That's metaphorical language for his heart. There is something inside of you that wants to overtake you. Don't let it do it. It wants to rule over you. Don't let it rule. Don't let it master. Of course, we know that Cain does and he kills Abel and, uh, and it's tragic. Jesus himself similarly teaches us there's something in the heart that murder is not really first a matter of the hands, it's a matter of the heart. He says in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, I say to you that if you are angry, if you insult, if you say you fool, you will be liable. Just the way you regard another person in your heart, if you dehumanize them, you're on this path. There's something inside of you that's doing that. Paul, St. Paul, he also was a murderer, as you know, before he met the risen Jesus Christ and transformed his life by grace. And and out of that experience, he, he tells us that we ought to put to death that thing that's crouching inside of us. Put the life taker uh, down. Um, this is what the Bible teaches us, and, I, and I, it's, I think it's really important to understand that human beings are complicated, and we get a sense of this in Moses. The ancient text is very insightful. It confronts our naive notions of uh, human goodness and simplicity. No, we're more complicated than that. Let's look a little bit more closely at, at Colossians at chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul talks about putting to death the thing inside of you. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly. And then he lists a few things, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. I thought this was kind of interesting. As I'm studying this, I go, you know, here's a a text that says, the Bible says, you shall not murder. And then in the same book, he says, put to death something inside of you. You shall not murder, but you should put something to death that's inside of you. I think it's really an interesting tension. What does that mean? to put to death something inside of you. It doesn't, here's what it doesn't mean. It, it doesn't mean to hate yourself. It does not mean to indulge your shame. No, it's not about putting yourself down. It's about putting something inside of you down. And so how do we do that? How do we put something to death inside of us that's life-taking? And there, there are a list of things that he gives, by the way, and we could add our own things uh, to that list like envy or distrust or bitterness or anger, hostility. How do we put those things to death? Well, in the context of of Paul's writing, he's talking about Jesus and he's talking about the cross and the crucifixion. And what he means by that is bring it to the cross. 
if, if we just look at the wider context of Colossians 3, 5, which we always should do, we should always back up, zoom out. Sometimes we're looking too close at the painting. We need to see the whole picture. He's telling us that we, are, we have a new identity if we, if we follow Jesus, if we trust him. We have a new identity. Your life, he says, is hidden in Christ with God. Your life is hidden. Your true self is hidden now with Christ in God. And so he's saying, now put to death those things that are not associated with that identity. Not put yourself to death, but put those things that relate to the old identity and self. Fornication, passion, bitterness, anger, mistrust. Bring them to the cross of Jesus Christ because Jesus knows what to do. Acting decisively in the world and in your life, God will, God will take those things, nail them to the cross of Jesus Christ. He will judge them. Judgment is real. He will judge them, but he will not judge us. He will judge that thing that is crouching within us, that's life-taking in Jesus Christ and give us life and make us life givers. This is a story of grace. This is a story who knows what to do with a life when we have not been life givers and redeem us. The story of Moses is the story of someone who at 80 years old gives witness to the fact that God knows what to do with those who have messed up their lives. Grace. He redeems our lives. And he does it at the cross. By murder, by the murder of the Son of God, murderers receive life, abundant life, eternal life. This is the sixth word. Life is a gift of grace. We zoom in and meet a God with a gift of life. We zoom out and meet a God with a gift of life redeemed. And so I want to just finally come back to our original question. How can you become a life giver for all people? And it, the answer, and you'll forgive me if it sounds simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. Find your life in Jesus Christ. Find your life in him the life giver. I remember this summer when I was at one of those protests, I happened to get pushed right to the front of the line. And it, there was a line, a clear line between two groups of people. On the one side, there were police in military dress. And it was a little scary. There was a, a definite implication of hostility. On the side of, that I was on, there were protesters who were taunting and demeaning those same police officers. And there was, again, a distinct tone of hostility. The enmity between the two sides across that line was really clear. And as I listened to people beside me dehumanizing people across from me, I began to have my doubts. I mean, I absolutely believe that racism will go away. It will change. But I, I, I don't think that this is the way it will change. This kind of we win, you lose. You lose, we win. This kind of violence and anger. James chapter 1 verse 20 says, the anger of man does not produce the justice of God. And I think the risk for us in, in this moment is that we will engage for justice the way Moses did. That, that we'll be trying to do something good, 
that will actually do harm in the process, that will be like Moses before he had an experience of life-transforming grace in his own heart. And, and please, this is, this is not just about social justice in America. This is about any conflict in our lives. <laughs> Internal conflicts, uh, the way I speak to myself. Family conflicts, the way I speak to other members of the family. People at work that annoy me or with whom maybe I have deep disagreement. The political lines that were, I mean, our ballots are in our hands right now. How are we going to engage uh, politically? What can we do? Well, the answer from the scriptures is to find life in Jesus Christ and then give life to one another. Now, I, I hope this doesn't sound passive. This is anything but passive. This is not just sitting back and going, well, I hope Jesus will take care of this. No, this is very active because it calls us first and foremost to do business with Jesus, to pull ourselves into the presence of the crucified Savior, to be confronted by his cross. His cross exposes our sin, exposes that which is crouching within us, eager to take life from ourselves and anybody else. The cross exposes that in the same way the Lord did for Cain. But the other thing the cross does is gives us an experience of a grace, pulls us into God's love. And when we are embraced that way in grace, we are then commissioned to go out to all the people around us and share grace, to engage with others the way we've been engaged with. And that's anything but passive. That's profoundly active and challenging. You see, the cross uniquely equips us to be agents of justice, to be life givers, because it, first of all, it defeats our pride. The temptation is to be proud, to be patriarchal or condescending when we pursue justice for others. And the cross says, oh, no, 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 not you. You needed grace. The other thing it does is it kind of lifts us up out of our um, discouragement and burnout and cynicism and says, hang in there because I am committed to the very last until all lives are embraced by this abundant life. That's how we become life givers for all people. And I want to just give you one last example. Martin Luther King Jr. Think of him for a moment. Imagine how he would walk the streets of Seattle today. He was a life giver. And he was because he had a profound experience of Jesus Christ. When, when, when he walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama in 1965, he walked with... Uh, Rosa Parks and John Lewis and so many others, they were all followers of Jesus Christ. We call them civil rights leaders, but they were gospel leaders. They were all people who encountered life at the cross of Jesus Christ, and they were extending it to others. They didn't cross that bridge with taunts, demeaning the other side. They crossed that line with song and prayer, ready to lay down their lives peacefully for the other. In fact, that was the secret of Dr. King's activism. It wasn't just we're here to liberate ourselves. It's here, we're here to liberate you as well. Because we will not experience the fullness of humanity that God intends for us until every human being experiences the fullness of their humanity. You see, that's what this commandment is about. Thou shall not murder 
You know, Moses wandered for 40 years after murdering a man. 40 years in the wilderness, wandering in shame, hiding from his God. And then at the age of 80, you know what happens. He hears his name coming from a burning bush. Moses, Moses, I am your God. And and I just wonder if today you're here worshiping with me because the Lord is calling you as well. He's saying your name. And he's saying, I am your God. And I don't know whether you hear an audible voice or, or not, but I wonder and I pray that there's something inside of you that just seems to be drawing you towards Jesus. Maybe it's that you believe in the equality of all people. Maybe it's that you believe in universal human rights. Maybe you believe in the power of grace. Do you know, these things are cultural values today. I would say almost all of us believe in those things. But remember why. It's because of Moses, this commandment, and Jesus. Jesus has infiltrated our culture to the point that it just seems intuitive for us that all people are precious and sacred. I mean, if that's true, then yeah, it's fine to have the shadow. Why not actually have the person who casts the shadow? And that's Jesus, the living Christ. You believe what you believe because Jesus has made you, given you the gift of life and is calling you to life redeemed. I wanna invite you this morning to just quiet yourself Do whatever you need to do to listen for his voice calling you home, calling you to his life. He's doing that. He's doing it for me and he's doing it for you. Why should we be satisfied when we could know the one personally who gives us life? Come, he says. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. King Jesus, we bow before you, not in fear, because you've already disarmed the principalities and the powers that stand against us and within us. We come before you in grace, with gratitude and joy and an eagerness to share that grace with everyone around us, We pray that you'll fill us with your Holy Spirit today and make us life givers. For your sake and in your name we pray it. Amen.